mind to start a sermon with a guest preacher that there's not an audible groan from the crowd that says, oh no, what are we in for? The good news is no matter how bad the sermon is, you got something nice to look at for the next couple hours, so you're welcome for that. I guess you can thank my parents for that. <laughs> I'm excited to be able to teach this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 21. You can turn there um, as we get started. And uh, somebody asked me this week if I missed preaching every week. And um, to be honest, I do not. I don't miss the, the relentlessness of Sunday. It's always coming. As soon as you finish Sunday, there's another one coming, uh, unless the Lord were to return. And, but I, I do miss, and I remembered it this week, I missed the prep time, just diving deep in God's word and and just chewing on it and meditating on it and not just reading it for a moment and then moving on with my day. And I, and I know sitting in a room this size, there are probably several people in this room and there's probably a lot of people in this room that maybe haven't even cracked open their Bible this week um, who have come this week and this is the only time they're gonna spend any time in the word. And my hope and prayer is that after today, that will change. That God's word is, is not only deep, but it's enjoyable. I think sometimes we come to scripture and think, well, I've got to have a, a PhD in theology and understand this, and it's not. The, the beauty of scripture is it, it is like an ocean that is so deep that you'll never touch the bottom, yet so shallow that you'll never drown. There's no need to be intimidated by it. And, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the greatest teacher the world has ever known living inside of you. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need teachers. There's a place for it. Obviously, I'm standing up here looking handsome for you and teaching, but there's more to it than that. It's you spending time with God in his word. And so I want us to enjoy it this morning. So uh, it, it's obviously, David and I have different styles. Um, and so it may feel a little different this morning. You can decide afterwards whether you think you should tell David next week, uh, don't ever go out of town again. Um, but hopefully that's not the case <laughs> this morning. Uh, but I, I do, I, I want to spend some time not only enjoying the word, but enjoying it together. Because there is something unique and special when God's people gather to discuss God's word. And this obviously won't be a discussion time. Uh, please, no calling out. That might throw me off this morning. But this will be a time when we, I want us to do it together. And, and I pray this morning that you read it like you're there. Because here's the important, and I think where we often miss scripture. We try and pull it out of its original context and make it apply to us today. And, and that, that has a place in scripture reading. But there was in a context this was written in. There was a purpose and a time period for a reason. And so I want to take you back in the pages of Scripture to this moment in John chapter 1. Uh, an incredible moment interchange with, with Jesus and Peter and so much more than that. But as we go through this, we're going to take our time and hopefully dive deep. But as we begin this morning, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. And I openly confess even now before you and your people that we have not spent the time in it that we should. We have allowed other things in our lives to come before you. And uh, with our lips we have said we loved you, but with our actions we have denied you. Because we allow this world to take our focus. We allow the things that will not last become foremost in our lives, Lord. But I pray for a few moments, 
through your word. And you would change hearts and lives because you are the only one that can do it. Thank you for your word. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 21, we're going to read in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter replied, yes, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now scores and scores of sermons and commentaries and books have been written about this interchange. And I think it's not quite as complicated as people make it out to be. In fact, I think it's quite plain in the context, but we do have to go back to understand the context to see what's going on here. There's obviously something important happening. And I imagine this, if I came home one day from work and my wife greeted me at the door, like she always does, of course, when I walk in, just excited to see me, comes in and as I'm setting my bag down, she says, Scott, do you love me? I'd probably be like, girl, you know, come on. You know I love you. But if she said no, Scott, do you love me? I would say, yes, of course I love you. But then if she said, Scott, do you love me? I would instantly know there's more to her question than whether I love her or not. Something more is happening in this interchange. And it's, it's not something more just for Peter. I think there's a pivotal question in this interchange that all of humanity must come face to face with and must answer, and the consequences are life and death. But in order to understand that, we've got to go back. We've got to see the bigger picture. So we're going to back up in this passage, and we're going to start at verse 1. And we're just going to kind of slowly go through it and be able to see what is happening in this interchange, starting in verse 15. But we'll start in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. So it starts with after this. So something must have happened to this point. So I'm gonna just paraphrase a little bit for us for time's sake this morning. But you, you can, can kind of remember what is taking place with the disciples. Less than 40 days ago, Jesus has been crucified. When he's crucified, he, ra- he rises three days later. The disciples run because they hear from Mary that the tomb is empty and the disciples run to see this empty tomb. And, and I love that in the book of John, John reminds everybody that he beat Peter there. He gets there first and looks inside the tomb and Jesus is not there. And they, they don't understand what's going on. And so they gather together in a house and uh, scripture records that Jesus just appears in the room with them. And doesn't tell anything. He just has something to eat with them, sits with them for a few minutes, and then poof, he's gone. And they're sitting around the room like, what just happened? And then he does the same thing a second time, because the first time Thomas, one of the disciples, wasn't there. And so he does it again. And this time he tells Thomas, you didn't believe I was raised? Here, put your hands in my wounds. But then he disappears again. And again doesn't explain anything. 
And so these guys are wondering what in the world is happening. They have followed him day in and day out for the last three years. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's not like they showed up one Sunday and spent an hour with him or saw him every once in a while on TV. Every moment of their life for the last three years has been in his presence. They ate with him. They slept next to him. They got up in the morning. They watched him heal. They saw it all day in and day out. And they were just getting okay with the idea that he was God in the flesh. They had just kind of come to that understanding shortly before these events. They'd finally come to an understanding where they could, they could see that Jesus was more than just a man. But in their mind, he was coming to defeat the Romans. He was going to set up a new government. They had an idea of who Jesus should be. Does this sound familiar for people? It wasn't the Jesus that he was revealing. Even I mean, he had just talked to them at the Lord's Supper two chapters before this, explaining that he was going to die, and they're just listening on that. Ah, I don't know. I'm not sure what he's talking about dying, because we're, we're going to be sitting at your right hands in just a little bit. I mean, you're about to restore the kingdom. And they don't understand it. And now he's died. He's been resurrected, but he's kind of showing up and disappearing, and they're frustrated. Jesus hasn't fulfilled their expectations. We come to verse 3, where Peter, in the middle of all this frustration, says, I'm going fishing. And all the rest of the disciples say, we're in. Now understand this for a moment. This isn't about rest. This wasn't Peter saying, man, I just need, you know, the best day, of, the worst day of fishing is better than the best day at work type stuff. This wasn't, hey, I just need a minute to go clear my head and go out on the water. This was much deeper what he's saying here, and the disciples agree to, that rest, in fact, is a good thing. One of the things um, that has been surprising for us as a family coming back from overseas over the last year is how busy we are in the States. We run from one thing to another thing, and we have very little time for anything that really matters because there's so many other things pressing on us. And we, we rarely even have the time to sit back and wonder, should we be doing all these things? And we don't rest well. I'm thankful that David can leave this week with his family and rest. Thankful for being in a church that allows that. But we don't, as a people, rest well. We're so busy with things that don't matter in a lot of times. But rest, in fact, is important. One of my favorite quotes, John Piper once wrote this. Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. The rest is a good thing. God wants us to rest. That's not what the disciples are doing here. They don't need rest. They're in confusion. Because you've got to remember, what were these guys before Jesus called them? They were fishermen. That's what they did. And in this moment of confusion and frustration and God not doing what they said and expected, they're ready to go back to what they know. They're ready to spend some time doing something that's familiar and that is simple and easy for them. And I think if we're being honest this morning, this may be true for many of us. Many of us in this room may have thought one way about Jesus one time in their life 
And maybe it's not quite working out like you thought. Maybe in a lot of ways, Jesus doesn't act on your command. And we, we think in our mind, that's foolish. Of course he doesn't. But how often do we get mad when he doesn't? And we storm around like spoiled children and say, Lord, you're supposed to love me. So you should do what I say. I do it for my kids. I love my kids more than you love me. We act like we don't say that. We may not say that out loud, but I guarantee in this room, we have all had that discussion with the Lord because he doesn't do what we say. He doesn't act like we want him to act. And if we're being completely honest, the real danger may be because we haven't taught the true gospel. If we sit and think about the way you share the gospel with people, tell me if any of this sounds familiar. You're at work. You're being attentive. You want to share the gospel with somebody. You're, you've been in the word. You're excited. And you hear somebody that you know is having some marital problems. And so you go and sit down with them and you're trying to come from them and you just say, you know, Jesus can fix all of this. Jesus heals marriages. Or maybe somebody's struggling with the loss of money or a job. And you say, you know, Jesus, I mean, Jesus can, owns everything. He can take care of that. Or maybe somebody's sick and you say, Jesus can do it. Which, in, in essence, those are all true statements. Or maybe it's even more subtle. And the gospel you share is when somebody is frustrated or have anxiety, and you say, Jesus can bring you peace. Or Jesus can bring you joy. I know you, you seem to be having a hard time. Jesus can do those things. Jesus loves you so much. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you to make you happy. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, most of that is true. But is that the gospel? Because here's how we've clouded the gospel with the same problem the disciples were seeing. Is we've made the gospel about Jesus does and not about Jesus himself. We've made the gospel the prize of Jesus' works, not him. And instead we should be a people that are on our face, crying out before the Lord, we are not worthy to untie your sandals, to even look upon you, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Instead of daring to stand before the Lord and saying, do what I've told you to do. And maybe this morning you're sitting here with that frustration. And it's the first time you've thought about, is this how I treat Jesus? Like a genie we pull out every once in a while and rub the lamp and say, hey, get to work for me. If you love me, you'll do it. But is that the gospel? Because what we're going to see in these pages of scripture is Jesus is the prize. And we are not worthy to be in the present again, yet he has broken into our lives and opened our eyes. Maybe you have left your first love because things didn't work out. If we look back in Luke chapter 5, and I'll just sum it up for you. Luke chapter 5 records the story of when Peter originally came face to face with Christ and his calling. And in this incredible story, you have Peter is, has been fishing all night with uh, James and John, and they've been out all night. They didn't catch anything. They're on the shore trying to tend their nets, and this teacher is coming down, which they've heard about, and they know him some. They've had some interaction with him up to this point. And he comes down, and there's such a huge crowd, they push him out into the boats. And so he pushes out in, into Peter's boat, and he's sitting there and teaching, and then he tells Peter, hey, let's push out a little further. And he said, let 
how many fish do you catch? He's like, no, we've, we've fished all night. He said, well, we'll throw your nets on the right side of the boat, which to me is always a fascinating moment to think about it. These professional fishermen are like, oh, we were fishing on the left side all night. That's what threw us off. We, it was the right side. But in that moment, Peter does exactly what he says. And as they begin to pull up the net, it's so filled with fish that it overflows their boat. And they call the other boat over and it overflows the next boat. And in that moment, Peter cries out, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He realizes there is something unique and special about Jesus. And he was so captivated by him that he was willing to leave everything. Because right after that, Jesus tells him in verse 9, Do not be afraid. From here on out, I will make you a fisher of men. And then it says, They pulled their boats to the shore, and they left everything, including his father, and followed Jesus. Now, three years has passed since that moment, and a lot has happened there's frustration now there's struggle I pray that you've had a moment with Jesus that you were so captivated that you cried out I'm a sinner have mercy upon me there may be some in this room that's never even known that moment but I pray that's been a moment and maybe since you've had that moment a lot has happened Maybe there's been a struggle with health. Maybe there's been a struggle with jobs. Maybe there's been a struggle with selfishness in your own self. And you've forgotten what it was like to be so captivated by Jesus that nothing else in the world mattered. So I want us to see Jesus' response to the disciples in that moment. Back in the text, in verse 3, the second half, it says, They went out in the boat and caught nothing. So they fished all night long and caught nothing. Don't miss this. They're trying to meet their own needs and they catch nothing. I like to imagine, I'm a, I'm a visual person when I read scripture. So uh, when I read through this, I, I try and picture what it was like that night on the boat. Because this was hard work. This wasn't casting them and like, let's just relax and talk and hang out. This was hard, hard work. These were nets made of, made of rope that would get waterlogged and they would drop them over and they would drag them along the bottom and they would pull them in over and over and over. I mean, I, my back hurts just even thinking about it. And they did that all night long for hour upon hour upon hour and they catch nothing. And these are men who just saw some of the most amazing things in human history. And I can imagine as they're out here on the Sea of Tiberias that Maybe John looks up and he sees that's the hillside where I watched Jesus feed the 5,000. Where he, he made that food expand, the two fish and the five loaves, and he fed them all. I remember that moment. Where James looks out and says, weren't we about here when Jesus walked on the water? You guys remember that? And I also picture Peter looking up on the countryside seeing the hill where he denied Christ three times and disowned him when that same evening he told him I will follow you to death and then within an hour said I don't even know you and so all those memories all the not only the good memories but the painful ones and then the confusion just setting in and after this frustrating night 
And then in verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, these are professional fishermen. So this isn't a bad question to ask for them. And he's gentle with it. This, this term children is a, a tier, term of endearment. But this is one of those questions you don't want to answer as a professional fisherman because you don't have any fish. You've been fishing all night long and now there's a guy on the beach that's like, hey, you guys happen to have any fish? And so they respond and just shout out, no. So the stranger calls back, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. something amazing happens they do it there's so many fish they can barely haul the net in and John has a revelation and he cries out to Peter Peter it is the Lord now here's a side note they fished all night to meet their needs and it wasn't until Jesus showed up that their needs were met and in verse 7 Peter puts on his garment and he dives into the water and he makes a break to get to that beach. Now, some people have read this and thought, oh, that's Peter. Peter would be crazy. I mean, he's the one chopping off of ears. He's the one, let's go to our death. He's always the one so excited about doing everything. So Peter's just, you know, he's being Peter. He just had jumped out. I don't think that's the case here at all. I think when he heard John exclaim, Peter, it is the Lord, there is nothing that would keep him from getting to Jesus. He wasn't going to wait. He wasn't going to wait for them pulling the boat. He wasn't going to worry about the fish. He wanted to get to Jesus. Because I believe Jesus in that moment had taken him back to Luke chapter 5. Jesus had basically recreated for Peter on purpose the moment when Peter was so captivated by it he was willing to leave everything. And he wanted him to experience that again because he had a question for him. And so Peter made his way to the beach beats everybody and he gets to the beach and there are two interesting things that take place in verse 8 the rest of the disciples bring the fish with them they're, they're fishermen no, we're not leaving this hall they bring all the fish in but in verse 9 it says when they got on land they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread now understand this no sentence in scripture is there accidentally. God doesn't waste one word. There's nothing in scripture that's like, well, that's a weird detail. Why is that in there? There's a purpose why he says there's a charcoal fire burning when he came to the beach. I don't know if you're like me. I'm gonna assume some of you are crazy a little bit like me. So that there are certain smells that bring back memories. You know, you can smell certain things and you're like, oh, you automatically think of something like, you know, you smell fresh cut grass and you think, oh, it's springtime or summertime or maybe a sports or something. Or you smell a certain perfume and you think of your spouse or, you know, you smell a manliness musk and you think of your husband. Um, but there's those moments that always bring back memories. And when we first moved overseas as a family, uh, we arrived in Turkey during the, the Muslim sacrifice holiday, which... I won't go into all the details, but it's an interesting day where um, cows and sheep and goats are sacrificed all over the city, and they do it early in the morning, and uh, there's all kinds of smells that come along with that. 
But then shortly, uh, around 10 o'clock, this, this grill smoke begins to permeate the entire city because they're going to, to burn the sacrifice and eat it. And I remember it was this first week we were there and going out to experience this and walking the streets and that smell hit me. And for the rest of my time, any time I smelled that smell, it was called Mongol, that memory would flood back in my mind. I just pictured sitting on my balcony watching this take place because it was burned into my memory. And so it was a moment that I could not forget. This phrase, a charcoal fire, is used twice in scripture. It's used here when Peter's walking onto the beach, coming to Jesus, and he sees this. And it's used in John 18, 18. And it says that John stood before a charcoal fire as he denied Jesus and disowned him. So don't miss this in this passage. Nothing would keep Peter from getting to Jesus. But as he reaches the beach, there's a moment when he's confronted with a horrible memory that just a few weeks ago, he denied Christ. And so Jesus is about to confront that. I imagine there was a temptation to run away at this moment. I imagine in Peter's mind, he's thinking, oh, I forgot about that. In my excitement to come to you, I was the one that disowned you. And I want you to hear this morning, our enemy doesn't come up with anything new. Satan's tricks have been the same since time began. And I know there are people in this room that the enemy will whisper in your ear, you cannot come to Jesus because he knows what you've done. He knows that you have lusted after other women. He knows that you've been angry at people. You're a murderer in your heart. He knows that you're a liar and you look one way on Sunday and you look a different way when you're with your family. He knows you're abusive to your wife and your kids. He knows that you do not love him. You cannot come to him. And the enemy uses that to have people dwell on that moment. These, we often define our lives by our worst moment in history. So many people do it. That's the reason why suicide rates went through the roof during COVID because people had time to dwell on those moments. Let us not forget that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, there were two people that betrayed him very clearly. Now, all the disciples deserted him. They all betrayed him. The entire world turned their back on him. But there were two that outspokenly did it. There was Peter and there was Judas. And Judas and his guilt did not turn toward Jesus. Jesus hung himself because he could not let that moment go and be healed hear this today if you hear nothing else there's nothing you have done nothing you will do today and there's nothing you will ever do that will separate you from the love of Christ the cross is too important there's nothing that you could put before the cross that say this is the one thing it couldn't cover it has all been covered and Jesus wants Peter to come to the reality of that because Peter already had his Luke 5 moment and he turned his back on Jesus and so now he's remind him, you once came to me and said I was worth everything, following everything, and yet you walked away and went back to what was familiar because I didn't work out the way you thought I would. I didn't do what you said I would do. You walked away, so here's your chance. So Jesus invites them to breakfast. 
Verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This is the most important question that Peter will answer, and this is the most important question that we will ever answer in our lives. And we have to ask the question, what are these? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in this. You've got the boats, you've got the fish, you've got the disciples. They've all come to shore. So Jesus then looks and says, what are these? And people have argued about this, which I don't think there needs to be much of an argument. I think the context is pretty clear. Um, but in studying for this, you, you'll read some authors that will say, well, Jesus was talking about the other disciples. And he said to Peter, do you love me more than these guys do? Nathaniel and John and James. And I mean, I think, come on. There's nowhere in scripture where Jesus pits his disciples against each other. That's not in his character to point and say, hey, John really loves me this week. What about you, Peter? How are you feeling? I'm going to go spend some more time with James because he's really got it going on for his love for me, but not you guys. I mean, he just doesn't do that. It's not in his character. But if we think back to Luke chapter 5, and if we look at what's happened here, because not only do they drag the boats on, in the Luke chapter 5 passage, it says they brought the boats and then they left immediately. They left everything. But it doesn't record that in this passage. In fact, it says they bring the boats on and they bring the fish. It says they actually have 153. There's a reason why this is in here. Because the Spirit is comparing these two interactions. The Spirit is drawing our mind to a moment in Scripture and in time when they walked away from everything, followed Jesus and yet turn their back on him and return to what was familiar. And now they're trying to do the same thing. They're bringing the fish up and saying, just in case this doesn't work out, we've got our fish. And they've already counted them. And I need you to hear this morning, there is no Jesus and. It doesn't work. There is no, I'll follow Jesus and I'll just add him to some other things that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to add him to my faith in the church. Or I'm going to add him to my faith in my spouse. Or I'm going to add him to my faith in him, but just in case other things. Jesus is it. There are no other fish. There is nothing else worthy to put their faith in. And so as Jesus looks at Peter, he says, do you love me more than these? And I believe wholeheartedly that he pointed right to the fish. And Peter had to look back at them and he began to answer the questions. And they began to have this interchange. But we can't look at the interchange until we answer this question. What are these for you? I don't know if there's something that you've never really sat down and thought about and you've put your faith and trust in without even knowing it. Is it comfort? And let's be honest, if our comfort was gone, would you stay faithful to the Lord? If the Lord today stripped everything from you, you had nothing. You had no job. You lost all your savings. And not because you were unfaithful, but because of something crazy that happened. Would you be able to say the Lord is good? Because I guarantee, and I, I promise you, a day is coming 
in our culture and in our nation when that will be the cost to follow Jesus. Right now, there's not a lot of cost. It's, it's easy. It costs us nothing. I mean, I don't want some of you in this room may have experienced some minor persecution, but I don't know of anybody in here that's ever lost a job for their faith. I don't know anybody in here that's lost their family. I don't know anybody here that has been threatened to lose their life. What we struggle with often is we say, well, Jesus, I want to add you, but I also want to make sure that you give me health and wealth because that's what you do. If you love me, you'll do that. And we put our faith in that comfort or that job or we put it in our possessions or we put it into sports. I, this may touch a nerve, but being overseas the last years, you know, you just kind of lose track. I used to be a sports nut. Um, when I first went to college, I, I watched sports on Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Then they came out with Tuesday night, college football on Thursday night. The only sad night was Wednesday. And that's what my wife married into. And I loved it. I spent time with it. I studied it. I could talk to anybody about it. And I, you know, I'm still a, I'm still a Rangers fan right now, Texas Rangers. I know there's a lot of Astros fans in here. But I, I really don't know much about them anymore. I don't, I don't spend much time thinking about it. Every once in a while I'll read something here and there and I'll see if they've won. But it, it just doesn't, isn't all-consuming. I remember uh, years ago um, when I was on staff in a church up in Little Elm in Dallas, the Dallas area, uh, we had a guy in our church who worked for the Cowboys. And he came to the office one day when our senior pastor wasn't there. And uh, he saw me and he said, hey, are you a Cowboys fan? Now, I'm not a Cowboys fan, but for a moment I was because I knew he worked for the Cowboys. So I knew something good was coming behind this question. So when he said, are you a Cowboys fan? I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, I've got these tickets for a game that, you know, I can get you guys in early for you and our senior pastor, and you can come to the game. It was a 3 o'clock game, and the Cowboys were 6-0 at the time, and the Patriots 6-0, and they were coming. And he said, hey, if you come early, I'll get you down on the field. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a Cowboys fan. I'll be there in a minute. And so he gives us these tickets, and we start to head to the game. And I'll never forget so this was in the old Cowboy Stadium. They were, they were funneling us into this area. And we had parked far away because we got there just in time and all this stuff. But they were funneling us, and they had this chain-link fence that, kinda, that all the people going into the stadium would walk alongside. And then the parking lot was just filled with Cowboys fans. Now, when I say Cowboys fans, I mean the true word of fan, fanatics. These are people that had set up basically their home in the parking lot. They had grills. They had, they had like, posters out. They had wall hangings, they had couches in different parking, I mean they'd taken up four parking spaces I mean they'd reset up their life and I'm pretty sure they didn't have tickets to the game they were just there, they wanted to be there and they would scream at people as you were going past the, the chain link fence there, screaming. anybody wearing a New England jersey was just getting an earful of it and I remember walking by going these people are crazy and I remember in that moment the Lord just saying no these are people who are consumed with their love for the Cowboys. And to them, it's not crazy to yell at people who aren't fans. To them, it's not crazy to spend all their money on the Cowboys. To them, it's not crazy to let everybody in the world know they are a Cowboys fan. They are consumed 
It's like they walk up and you say, hey, my name's Scott, I'm a Cowboys fan. Who are you? Do I know you? Because if you're not, we don't need to talk. Because that's what mattered most in their life. It's what we spend our time with. It's what we spend our money on. We can say all we want with our lips that we love Jesus, but if our life does not reflect it, is that a true statement? When I do financial counseling with families, I, typically I'm a pastor, so I'll ask, what's most important in your life? And of course, they're talking to a pastor, so they're always super spiritual. And they always say, oh, well, Jesus is number one, of course. And then my family and then my friends. And then we start to look at finances, and I say, well, really? You say those are the things that are most important to you, but your finances tell us a very different story. The fact is, we can act like we love Jesus more than these, but our lives reflect a very different story. And there are often times there are good things that come in the place of Jesus. I don't know if you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, well, Lord, you could take the cowboys away. You could, I could do without sports. I could do without comfort. I could do it all. But don't touch my children. I know that can be a touchy situation or don't touch my spouse or don't touch my parents they're off limits and the problem with that is Jesus would ask you the same question do you love me more than these because he's going to have a very clear answer here in just a moment in Matthew chapter 10 and this is a question we must confront. This is a question we must understand. And this is a question we cannot run from. It is too important not to wrestle with this before the Lord. Is there anything in your life that you love more than the Lord Jesus? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Matthew writes these words. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The reality is, if there is anything in our lives that we would say, I love this more than you, then we are dead and lost in our transgressions. There is no hope. Jesus will not share us. He is worth more than that. He is worthy of everything within us. Just imagine for a moment if you spent as much time in the Word as we did on Netflix. Netflix stock would plummet if God's people would just say, you know what, he matters more to me than that. I don't know what it is in your life, but I, I want you to confront it this morning. In Revelation chapter 3, there's a great moment in Scripture where Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. 
And if anyone will open that door, I will come in and I will sup with you. The question this morning is if the Lord has brought conviction to your heart, will he find those doors open? Or is there a sign right there on the door of your heart that says, I've gone fishing? What are these in your life? Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning there is no one like you. And our eyes have been distracted by the things of this world. We have given worth to things that are worthless. We have given our time and our energy and our focus to things that will fade and will never last in eternity. But I pray, Father, for the conviction of your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would pour it out on us and show us these things that we would put before you. And I pray, Father, we would confess them and turn to you and cry out, we are a miserable people. Have mercy on us. For worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and praise.